This morning, to get things started, we're going to be looking at the identity of the church. Uh, a couple months ago, I was having a conversation with my four-year-old Noah, and we were playing, and he was saying all sorts of silly things. He was asking me all kinds of questions, uh, but one of the questions that he asked, which I absolutely loved, was this, Daddy, who am I? And I replied, you are Noah Lee, and I'm your dad, and Irene Lee is your mom, and Karis is your sister, and Elijah and Joshua are your brothers, like it or not, and we love you so much. And the things when I responded, I didn't even think about what I was saying. Those words just came out of me, and I wanted him to know that those are the things that really mattered. I wanted him to know that he was a part of our family and that we loved him. And as his father, I responded to my son's question of who am I by describing his relationship to me and to my wife and to the rest of our family. And if someone were to ask, what is the church? Who is the church? There are a lot of different ways to answer that question. But just as I described who Noah is in relation to me and my wife and to my kids, what we see is that God often describes who the church is in relation to himself. We see this in the passage we read this morning as believers are described as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Every one of those words that are used to describe believers find their significance in light of God, in light of the one who chooses them and calls them his own possession. Now, there's a kid I used to see at a local Starbucks in Irvine, and I noticed that he would pick up coffee for, uh, for one of his parents. He would take, a, take the coffee and go to the car. And this kid looked like he was in about fourth, in fourth grade, just another kid to me. Until so someone pointed him out and said, hey, you know who that is, right? I said, no, I see him all the time, but I have no idea. He said, that's, uh, that's Mark McGuire's boy. Well, Mark McGuire is considered one of the best sluggers in Major League Baseball history. Now, does it matter that that boy was Mark McGuire's boy. You bet it did. It made all the difference. I viewed him differently. His daddy was a superstar. Imagine what kind of life he must have. How big is your house, little guy? Imagine the kind of celebrities that he grew up with and all of the access and privilege and networking that he would have for the rest of his life because of who his dad is. And as far as I'm concerned, that boy's entire life is different. His identity is wrapped up and his father, and as believers and as a church, that's important for us to consider. Do we know who our spiritual father is? Where do we as a church derive our greatest sense of identity? Now, our passage this morning is written by the apostle Peter, and Peter's writing this letter to Jews and Gentiles that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, converts who are being persecuted and who are suffering for, in various ways for confessing Jesus as their king. And he's writing this letter to encourage them, to bolster their faith, to challenge them, to keep, to keep going, to remain strong. And isn't it interesting that one of the best ways for Peter to do that is by reminding them of who they are. Every single one of you in this room who confess Jesus as your king, if you haven't already, you will experience more and more persecution and rejection in the months and years to come by fellow students, co-workers, teachers, bosses, neighbors, maybe even family members. So much of what we see in mainstream media absolutely rejects and mocks and even hates Christianity. In America today, you cannot hold conservative Christian beliefs and not be persecuted. If you've never been mocked or snubbed or dismissed for your Christian beliefs either, I would argue that you're not engaging enough in conversations with non-believers about your faith or you're not expressing your beliefs. Now, this isn't meant to alarm you, but it's meant to prepare you. The Apostle Paul tells us clearly in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all who desire to live a godly life 
in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he's simply restating what Jesus said earlier in Matthew 10 when Jesus says this, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's absolutely critical, especially during times of persecution and suffering, when the culture is moving further and further away from Judeo-Christian values, that we know who we are as a church, that we know who our, that we know what our identity is. Now, just two things that we'll focus on this morning regarding the church's identity. There's, there's so much that we can say, but just two things I want to focus on. The first is this. The church has its roots in the Old Testament. Now, that may sound strange to some of you, um, because we tend to think that the church got started after Jesus' death and resurrection. After all, we have the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we see how the early church gets started. We read about Paul's missionary journeys where he evangelizes and sets up churches all over Asia Minor. So isn't that when the church got started? And the answer is yes. That is when the church proper got started, but the church that was forming and developing in the book of Acts is actually rooted in something far, far earlier than that. When Peter describes Christians as a chosen race, what he's doing is he's intentionally and he's deliberately using words, using language that would have been used to describe ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy 10:15, God says this about Israel. The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen race. And when Peter uses the same words that were once used to describe ethnic Israel, now to describe Christians, he's saying that a shift has taken place. Again, in the Old Testament, God's chosen race referred to ethnic Israel. But in the New Testament, God's chosen race refers to spiritual Israel. It refers to Jews and Chinese and Koreans and Europeans and Africans and Indians, anybody who places their faith in Jesus. And what we find is that this was God's plan all along. Now, back in Genesis 12, way at the beginning, we see this nation of Israel being formed, and it all begins with a man named Abram. In Genesis 12, God tells Abram to leave his country, his family, and everything that's familiar, and to set out for a new country, a place that God is sending him to. And God promises to Abram, if he obeys, he will do this. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, who, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From the very beginning, as God makes this promise to Abram to create a great nation out of him and to bless his nation Israel, in the very same breath, God speaks of these blessings that will extend far beyond the nation of Israel. God says that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What God had in mind all along from the beginning was a church that will one day be made up of believers from all over the world. And it all starts with Abram. Now, the analogy that's often used to describe this relationship between Abram and Genesis 12 and ethnic Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament is this example of a seed and a flower. And I've got a visual up there. And if you look up on the screen, of a picture that shows the various stages of a seed as it turns into a plant. Abram in Genesis 12 is like that first seed of the church that's being planted. It's there, it's very real, and the essence of the plant and that entire flower exists in that seed. But you don't know 
what, it, what it's going to look like because it hasn't fully developed yet. And as Abram has kids and grandkids and multitudes of people come out of his line, this, this nation of Israel is being formed, and you're moving from that early stage of the seed, and you're moving progressively closer and closer to where the flower blooms. blooms. And each step along the way, we're getting a sense of what this church is going to look like. What is the people of God going to look like ultimately? But it's not until we get into the New Testament where Jesus comes, he lives, and he dies, and he resurrects again that we see the flower blossom. The seed of Abram reaches its climax and its fullest development in the church. The church is what God always had in mind from the beginning. In our passage, Peter describes the church as a spiritual house, as a temple that God is building. In this house, we're told that Jesus is the cornerstone, and all of us as believers are like stones that are being carefully laid upon this cornerstone. Several years ago, um, this unbelievable house was being built in Shady Canyon. Shady Canyon is a very uh, exclusive gated community in Irvine. It's where a lot of the celebrities and uh, professional athletes live. And from start to finish, this, this unbelievable house, it took two years to complete. And when the house was finally complete, they had this viewing of the house, and my family happened to stop by. <laughs> you know, dare to dream. Um, and when we went in, there were people everywhere taking photos, shaking hands with this well-known architect and congratulating the new homeowners uh, that would be fortunate enough to live there. And this house was absolutely stunning. Journalists were there. They were interviewing this famous architect and this family because this house is going to be profiled in this architectural magazine. And this house was a prize accomplishment for this master architect. And I overheard the architect tell one of the journalists this house turned out exactly the way he had envisioned, exactly the way he had planned and, and designed two years earlier. And that's exactly how God views the church. The church is God's prize accomplishment. It's exactly what God had in mind thousands of years ago, way back in Genesis 12, when he calls Abram out. But this doesn't mean that the church is perfect or without problems. Some of you have already had bad experiences in the past with the church, so you might come already cynical. Even here at King's Church, at some point, members might hurt you, and you might hurt, you might hurt others. Um, at some point, Jason and I uh, may offend you if we haven't already. You might offend us, um, and it can hurt. And we have staff and elders and deacons that may be ungracious, maybe. They're under stress, and they may not respond as graciously as they would like to you, and you may not respond as graciously to them. There are plenty of ways that we might offend and hurt each other, and because of that, we may lose hope in the church. So how are, to be, how are we to view the church? How are we to speak about the church? I think the answer is to be hopeful but sober. It's exactly what God had in mind from thousands of years ago so we can have hope, but at the same time, we know that the church is filled with sinners, so we need to be sober. Now think about the way loyal sports fans identify with their favorite sports team. Uh, I've mentioned before, for seminary, for two, two years, I was out in Philadelphia. And if you guys know anything about Philadelphia, Philadelphia loves their Philadelphia, their Philadelphia Eagles, um, their professional football team. It doesn't matter how old you are, uh, what nationality you are, uh, where, you went to where you went to college, or how much money you make. If you grew up in Philly, you are a Philadelphia Eagles fan, or as you're not a true Philadelphian. And every, Sunday there was, and every Sunday when there was an NFL game, I thought our church members were so strange. Um, moms and dads and kids would come to church with a jersey of their favorite player on. I was like, oh my gosh, who does that, right? 
I grew up in L.A. I never saw that. Um, I think it's because we just have so many other options. We've got Hollywood. We've got the beaches. We've got the mountains. And so we don't see that kind of intense loyalty and fanatical commitment to the professional sports team. But things are different in Philly. The fans are fiercely loyal. And here's the thing about the Philadelphia Eagles. They're a good team. Um, I think they've made the playoffs um, just about every year since 2000. I think they've even made it to the Super Bowl twice, but they fell short every time. Um, they've never won a Super Bowl championship. In fact, they're the only team in the Eastern Conference that has never won a Super Bowl championship. Sorry about that, Kyle. And that fact absolutely eats away at them. And there's nothing that the city of Philadelphia wants more than a Super Bowl championship. But in spite of how disappointing and heartbreaking the Eagles have been, the fans are fiercely loyal and devoted. And, you know, I remember as much as I thought they were strange, I was like, there's something beautiful about that. The fact that these fans can remain that loyal, that devoted to their team, especially when their organization continues to disappoint them, is compelling. But it's not just loyalty, it's a sense of identification. The fans wear the jerseys of their favorite players because they want to identify with them. They're not abandoning ship anytime soon. If you did, you wouldn't be a true Philadelphian. And in the same way, there's something compelling when Christians can remain steadfast and loyal and committed to each other during difficult times, even when the church disappoints, and it will. But it's not just about loyalty. It's about caring enough to identify with the wounds and the brokenness of the church, with all of the things that are messy, with the problems of the church, the things that make the church what it is, to identify with it and to make that your own. So on the one hand, we're hopeful about the church, we believe that this was God's plan all along from Abram back in Genesis 12. We believe that God saves, God restores people through the church, but at the same time, we're sober. It will disappoint. The church will never be what we hope it would be until Jesus comes back and makes everything new again. The second point regarding the identity of the church is that the church is God's own possession. Now, Peter calls believers a people for his own possession— once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, what Peter is doing is he's making a reference to a very familiar story in the Old Testament. Now, in the book of Hosea, we have a story about God's prophet by the name of Hosea, and he's told by God to marry a prostitute by the name of Gomer. God tells Hosea to do this because he wants this marriage between a prophet and a prostitute to be a parable to be a metaphor of the kind of relationship that God has with Israel. Now, you see, what's happening during this time is that the Israelites were being unfaithful to God. They were abandoning the worship of God, and they were turning to Baal and to other foreign idols. And by doing so, Israel is committing spiritual adultery against God, and God wants to convey this adultery through this marriage between Hosea and Gomer. Now, if you put up the next slide, what we're told is this. Hosea goes and marries Gomer, and together they have a daughter. And God tells Hosea to name this daughter No Mercy. And afterwards, Hosea and Gomer have another child, and this time it's a son. And God tells Hosea to name him Not My People. And these names were meant to be prophetic. God would be so upset by the spiritual adultery of his people that they would experience this painful time of separation where they would no longer receive God's mercy and they would no longer be his people. And we see this prophecy come to play as the Israelites are handed over to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. This is a devastating time in the history of Israel because things are never the same again for them. But 
in that passage in Hosea, immediately after God makes this pronouncement that Israel will no longer receive mercy, that they will no longer be his people, in the very next verse, God makes another pronouncement. It's a reversal. And he says this, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land. This is a promise of forgiveness and restoration. This is God saying the original promise I gave to Abraham way back when in Genesis 12 is going to be fulfilled. A reversal is coming. Now, I don't know how that passage reads to you, but for me, the way I read it, it's almost as if God can't bear to leave his people on this final note of negativity. He tells them, yes, you will suffer. You will be abandoned. You will not be my people. You will be rejected. But hold on. Because a time is coming, a day is coming when things will change. And ultimately, you will be forgiven. You will be my people, and I will be your God again. Now, when I discipline my son, after he's done something bad, um, I'll usually sit him down, and I'll explain to him what he did that was hurtful. I mean, usually he jumps on Elijah and just starts smacking, smacking him on his head. and That's not good. And so I'll sit him down, I'll explain to him, you can't do that. And then if, if it's necessary, I'll, I'll, I'll give him a spanking. And, of course, when I spank him, he'll start to cry and tears are coming down. And I have to tell you that it's getting harder and harder to discipline my kids. Um, I'm not sure if it's because Noah's my fourth and it's just I'm getting softer over the years, but seeing him cry actually makes me so sad. Um, and so I'll spank him, but as soon as I do that, it's almost like to a fault, I immediately hold him and I comfort him I say, don't worry, Daddy loves you. Daddy spanks you because he loves you. Daddy wants Noah to grow up to be a loving boy, not a hurtful boy. And that's the sense that we get from this passage in Hosea. As much as God wants to and he needs to punish the Israelites for their spiritual idolatry, and he certainly does, it's like God can't resist speaking words of grace and restoration and forgiveness. It's like God looks forward to that day when his unfaithful wife Israel will be restored and cleansed and made beautiful again. And that day comes when Jesus dies on the cross and his blood washes away the sins, the unfaithfulness, the adultery, all the infidelity of the church, his bride. And the death and the resurrection of Jesus is what enables us, the church, to have a new name, to be given a new identity, my people, receivers of mercy. Now, in Ephesians 5, we have one of the most popular passages used at Christian weddings. Now, in this passage, the Apostle Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord and for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And he concludes that section with these words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now there, what Paul is doing is he's quoting Genesis 2, where God officiates humanity's first wedding between Adam and Eve. And what Paul is saying is that the marriage union between a husband and a wife is supposed to be so intimate, so, so intimate and so tight, it's almost as if two people are merging into one. And he says, as he's describing this union between a husband and a wife, he says, actually, what I'm really talking about is this relationship between Christ and the church. 
and the church is to be so fused together to Jesus in marriage that the church can exist apart from Jesus, and Jesus can exist apart from the church. The church is forever interwoven, connected, attached, and fused together to Jesus. The church is now God's possession. There will never be another time where God will ever say to the church, not my people and no mercy. We are his and he is ours. Paul says in Romans 8, nothing, absolutely nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The reversal that God anticipates in Hosea has taken place and it will never go back. As we think about this marriage between Jesus and the church, one obvious application is the kind of commitment that's involved in a marriage, this commitment to, to pursue, a commitment to stay, this commitment to forgive, a commitment to sacrifice. And let me close with this story. I don't know why I'm sweating so much. Um, last Sunday after church, my son Elijah went on a bike ride, and some of you know what happened. He went on a bike ride with my son, other son Joshua and a neighborhood kid named Brian. And they went on a trail that's not too far from our house. And long story short, Elijah was going down the trail really fast, so fast um, that he went off the main trail um, and, and he fell off and he ended up banging his head. And we're not really quite sure what happened because there was this uh, 45-minute period where um, it's unaccounted for. Um, he had his cell phone. We were trying to call him, but he wasn't picking up. And it looks like he may have blacked out. He may have been unconscious. And nobody could find him. And so um, it was a really, really frightening time. Now, my wife and I were at dinner at a friend's house, and as soon as we got the call from Brian, we called 911, and the paramedics and the ambulance and the firefighters all went to the, went to the trail. Uh, my daughter, Karis, she was with John and Jane from our church, and they were out, uh, out to dinner. Um, and as soon as, again, we got the call, we all converged. We all meet together at the bottom of the trail, and we're trying to figure out what's going on and where's Elijah. Now, thankfully, right when my wife and I arrived, another biker who had known that Elijah was missing... Um, managed to see him off the trail. So he went and got Elijah from the trail and carried him onto the main part of the trail. Um, the ambulance went and picked him up and brought him back. And I, you know, I have to tell you, you know, 45 minutes is a long time to go without knowing where your son is. A lot of crazy thoughts go through your mind. And so when we, when we found out that he was um, alive, we're tremendously relieved. At least we know that he's He's alive. Um, the ambulance picked Elijah up and headed over to Chalk, uh, Children's Hospital in Orange. And once we got to the hospital, it was pretty clear that he had a concussion. And he actually happened to have a GoPro camera strapped to his chest, and it recorded this whole ordeal. And if you look at this video, after he falls off the bike, he has this really heavy labored breathing. And he's like, <sighs> there's this heavy labored breathing. And afterwards, his leg starts to shake and, and, to, and to vibrate. And it's, it's impossible to say um, what was going on. The doctors say it may have been an impact seizure, a seizure that was caused because of the impact. But during this entire ordeal, from the time that we arrived at the mountain trail, um, went to the hospital, and for the several hours that we were at the hospital, trying to figure out what's going on, John and Jane were there with us. They were absolutely committed to us. Now, because Jane is a, is a pediatrician, she walked us through the entire process. She was asking all of the right questions to the medical staff. And John, for his part, he took our other kids, took them out to dinner, and just kept um, watch over them so that Irene and I could focus on Elijah. And at around midnight, when it looked like Elijah would have to stay the night so they could monitor his brain, 
um, John rode with me and my other kids um, in our car back to our house because we need to drop the kids off and, and we need to bring my wife's car back to the hospital. And during that drive, my daughter Kara says to me, what would we do without the church? What an absolutely beautiful question. What would we do without the church? I said, I don't know. I have no idea. Because during those several hours of panic and stress and confusion, what Karis experienced and what we experienced was a couple that was so committed to being with us in our hour of need, they actually became a tangible reminder of Christ's commitment to us. The church is far from perfect. The church has many faults. But one of the things that the church can often do so well is to reflect to one another the kind of compassion and and commitment and love that Jesus has for us. On Sunday night, we experienced that. What would we do without the church? Let's pray together. God, I pray that all of us would be asking that question, what would we do without the church? And that our experience with the church would be one of such so much beauty and compassion and love. God, that we would be absolutely foolish to, be, to not be a part of this, of this community that you've created, God. Jesus, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your radical commitment to us. I pray that every one of us would know that we are pursued, that we are loved, no matter what we might be going through, and that would change us. In Jesus' name, amen.